Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks. All right, so I'm reading from Matthew chapter 8 tonight. Uh, in, it's, the, it's the second Sunday of this worship series called Astounded, the title of which we got from the last verses of chapter 7, where Matthew sums up the Sermon on the Mount, saying when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, because he taught them as one with authority and not as their scribes. And we're asking the question together, like, what does that look like to teach with authority? What kind of authority is that, and how does Jesus exercise it? And so in all the stories that follow that summation of the Sermon on the Mount, we're learning along with Jesus's original hearers who he is and how he bees, you know, how he moves through the world, how he acts on the world, and how the world is acting on him. So last week when we got started, we looked at a series of miraculous encounters with beautiful outcomes. The banishment of disease and demon from the bodies and spirits of strangers he had just met. Health and wholeness and relationships restored. How great is that? And now what? Chapter 8 beginning in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, "Mm, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of humanity has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, what sort of human is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me nerd out for a minute on a bit of pattern recognition in Matthew's gospel. And some of y'all are like, ugh. And some of y'all are like, oh, yeah, that's my love language. Let's go. So for Matthew, Jesus gets baptized and then goes to the wilderness for a kind of spiritual hazing, comes back into town, has a sandwich, calls a couple disciples to help him get started, and begins healing folks, like lots of folks. 
Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the reign of God, curing every disease, every sickness among the people. So his fame spread, and they brought to him all the sick, everybody afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And here it is. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Great crowds. That's half the pattern. And then in the very next verse, Matthew 5, 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount begins, and that's the other half of the pattern. Part one, great crowds. Part two, Jesus runs away. Hear me out. He wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, and we get the verses I've been alluding to the last couple of weeks at the end of chapter 7, but this time I'm going to add the first verse of chapter 8. Now, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one with authority, not as their scribes. And when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So these great crowds are still with him. He's been preaching a long time, y'all, and they stayed. That's how good it was. He's attracting people with his healing and his teaching. And the next thing you know, in chapter 8, he heals a leper, a centurion's enslaved worker, his disciple Peter's mother-in-law. And then we get to our text for tonight, chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw the great crowds around him, well, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the sea. Okay, I know. So far, my pattern recognition is not all that impressive because we've only got two. But I'm hoping you can see it. There are these great crowds, which would be a good thing, right? If you're trying to get God everything God wants, if you are the Messiah of the world on a mission to reclaim what rightfully belongs to God, starting with the hearts and minds of the populace. But when those crowds are too great, a switch flips for Jesus. And he acts like a millennial whose ADHD made them forget to take their anxiety meds this morning. And he will do anything climb a mountain, cross a sea to get away from all that noise. The press of the people, the commingling smells of all those bodies and all those needs. Okay, let me go a little faster. There is a pattern across the whole of Matthew's gospel of crowds, even great crowds, gathering around Jesus because he's awesome and they're astounded. And the pattern includes Jesus having, let's say, a complicated relationship with those crowds. They come, he sees them, he interacts with them, he tries to get away. In chapter 9, he kicks the crowd out of the house so he can do his work. Then he has compassion for the crowds and says they are like with sheep without a shepherd. In chapter 11, he argues with the crowds and then he tries to get away from them in chapter 12, but the crowds follow him and he cures a bunch of their sick. He ignores his family of origin to pay attention to the crowds, chapter 12. And in chapter 13, he gets in a boat to teach from the water because the crowds on the shore are just too big. Then he goes in the house and shuts the door behind him so the crowds are left outside. And in chapter 14, he withdraws from the crowds to a deserted place, but the crowds follow him there. And again, he has compassion for the crowds and he heals a bunch more of them. Again, the crowds are hungry, and he feeds them, still chapter 14. Then he dismisses the crowds and goes off by himself to pray. In chapter 15, the crowds are back, all of them, needing healing and feeding all over again. And he does it all, and then he sends them away at chapter's end. Go on home, the Messiah of the world says, shoo, 
Go back to where you came from. This push and pull, Jesus and the crowds, continues through the whole gospel. The crowds ultimately following him all the way to Jerusalem, singing his praises and protecting him for a little while against his opposition by their sheer numbers. And then the crowds turn on him to shout for his execution at the hands of the state. They love him. They can't get enough of him. They betray him altogether. He loves them. He has compassion for them. He would do anything for them. But he really wishes they would go away. And the question we want to be asking is, why? Why? Coming back to our text for tonight, chapter 8, verse 18, why, when Jesus saw the great crowds around him, why did he give orders to go over to the other side? Let me just point out parenthetically that in tonight's reading, he never actually makes it to the other side. Tonight, we're going to leave him and his boatmates bobbing on the, wheeze, on the waves of that sea. Tonight is all about what happens before he gets to the other side. Next week, we're going to meet up with him on that opposite shore. But for tonight, he has given orders to go over to the other side, but he hasn't even gotten in the boat yet when somebody from the crowd pushes his way to the front and pledges his allegiance. And it's a scribe, no less. One of the VRPs, the very religious persons that get picked on a lot in the gospel stories. This scribe, though, is one of the astounded crowds. And the scribe says, you know, you're good at what you do. And wherever you're going, I want to come with, yeah? Or in the words of Matthew 8, 19, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Mm, that is a good get. One of the BRPs defecting from the traditional expressions of religious faith and community, hanging out with the riffraff crowd of sickos and degenerates who make up Jesus' usual fan base, recognizing that Jesus has something better on offer than he's been able to get in the halls of traditional religious power. Now, the conventional wisdom here would be keep that guy close. Get him in all the photo ops, on all the socials, because this guy's going to lend a lot of credibility to the overall project, you know? But we love Jesus because he's beholden neither to conventional wisdom nor to human hierarchies of status, right? So to the VRP, he says, ah, nah, this isn't really for you. Or in the words of Matthew 8, 20, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the son of humanity has nowhere to lay his head. Which is to say, Jesus' project, if that's what it is, involves a real and substantive loss of status and stability. You want to hang with me, Jesus says. you got to be ready to come down a couple notches, uh, several notches. Okay, all the notches. Because I'm down here on the food chain, below the foxes, the birds, the dumb creatures who at least have homes in this world God still loves. I don't. And if you come with me, neither do you. Now, before he can get in the boat, he's trying. Another guy, not just part of the crowd, but a sure enough disciple this time, somebody who has already pledged to follow Jesus, the homeless, status-tanking preacher, asks for just a short delay in their departure. Chapter 8, verse 21. Lord, first let me go 
and bury my father. Y'all, the father of a beloved co-conspirator in our church died just this morning. This is real. According to Jewish tradition, the dad who has died off stage in Matthew's story needs to be buried same day. So this disciple's grief is fresh. And Jesus, who we know is capable of so much compassion for the crowds and usually for the person standing right in front of him, says no. He says, you have misunderstood the job description of a disciple. The commitment you've made trumps every other commitment you thought you had. Come with me or don't, but don't ask me again to wait for you to take care of personal business. Or, in the words of Matthew 8, 22, but Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Do you think that guy got in the boat? If he did, what was he thinking and feeling as he helped raise the sails? If he didn't, what was he thinking and feeling as he made his way back to his parents' house? Choose your own adventure. Okay, one more before they arrive on the other side. They are in the boat now on the sea. And a storm comes up, and it's a big one, and their boat is small. And Matthew says the boat was being swamped by the waves. And though some of his disciples are experienced sailors, they are all together freaking out. And Jesus, presumably worn out from all that crowd interaction, is sleeping through it all. It is so weird, that sleeping. On the one hand, it is the most human thing in the world, right? To be tired and to need a nap. Here is Jesus modeling for us what it means to listen to our bodies, to stop imagining that if we stop working, the world will fall apart, to rest in defiance of the powers that want us to produce and spend in a relentless cycle of indebtedness to Pharaoh's economy. Jesus, the sleeping son of humanity, is showing us humans how to Sabbath, But I take it as a sign of his divinity that he can sleep through a windstorm on the sea. Like going all the way back to the beginning of all things in Genesis chapter 1, when the text says that God's own spirit blew like a wind across the face of the waters. And I'm thinking that for Jesus, the wind and the waves touch something deep inside him, like the rhythm of a rocking cradle mimics the rocking of a pregnant person in motion, the sway of walking calming the baby before they're born. The windstorm on the sea rocks the Son of God to sleep. But this nap no matter how perfectly it represents Jesus' dual identity, does not account for the disciples' fear, real fear of the deep, of drowning. And so they shake him awake with an accusation. What the fuck, man? We're getting killed out here. Or in the words of Matthew 8, 25, Lord, save us. We are perishing. And I got to say, my own impulse in a situation like that would be to apologize profusely for letting my friends down, for being too tied up in my own peace and quiet to attend to their floundering. But Jesus, no regrets. And apparently he's a grumpy guest when his naps are interrupted. 
I don't even need to paraphrase it. Matthew 8, 26 is quite clear. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Ugh, sick burn. And so, here is a pattern within the pattern. Across the whole gospel, Jesus is uneasy with the ever-present crowds. Here in three short stories told in swift succession, Jesus can be harsh in his responses to people who sound a lot like us. People who are enthusiastic to get with him, but whose enthusiasm he suspects won't last when they see what life with him is really like, what it really costs. People who want being with him not to disrupt any of their prior commitments, their current relationships. People who are shocked and dismayed to realize that being with him does not make everything instantly better all the time. It's like he's worried that the crowds have the wrong idea about him. He has healed and fed them. He has loved them back to life and family. But if they get the idea that every day with Jesus is a pride picnic, or if they imagine that being next to him is a promise of safety or health or 24-7 good vibes, or if they think of him as something they can squeeze into their already very crowded lives, or if they insist that their loyalty to him deserves some guarantee of ease, of freedom from fear or despair or suffering. If those things were true, he could just keep giving them what they want, and they would keep coming. But Jesus is nothing if not a relentless truth teller. And one of the truths he needs them to understand is that in some very real ways, being with him is harder than not. I often say, because someone wise said it to me, that saying yes to anything means saying no to something else. And Jesus needs the people around him to think through what they're saying no to when they say yes to him. He does not need or want crowds of shiny, happy people insisting that Christian faith is a self-help strategy for success and comfort. He will not feign a smile and grant wishes for those who insist that religion should guarantee them the life they have imagined for themselves. It doesn't mean he feels any less compassion for those crowds or for us. It just means, church, that we have to take care to remember as we tend to our own brokenness in this place, as we tend to each other's wounds around here, as we state our collective and noble intentions to do justice and kindness and beauty and skip the bullshit, that doing these things is harder than not doing them. That aligning our own desires with God's desires for us and for this world is a costly enterprise. Doing church the way we're committed to doing it diminishes our status among our neighbors and causes us discomfort in the public square. Having no bullshit relationships here costs us time and energy that we have to take from other things, even other relationships that are important to us. And you know it is dangerous 
to take our justice work public, to keep our voice loud, keep our doors wide open. Discipleship, I'm saying, because Matthew said it, who said it because Jesus said it, isn't for everyone. In the words of Buffy the Vampire, Vampire Slayer, excuse me, season one, it's a job of work. I'm glad we're doing it together, you and I. And we're not much of a crowd, are we? Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.